Today on Backroom Politics, the president says that healthcare.gov is working again. He even showed us how to do it. Can the, can the Democrats stop the hemorrhaging of popularity with the American electorate over healthcare.gov? We're going to be talking about the latest Supreme Court or the latest court rulings on the Detroit bankruptcy. We're also going to be talking about the stuff that happened while we were gone for Thanksgiving, including Iran and China. And it was Cyber Week and Black Friday last week, and the numbers are dismal. Listen, tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, to his left, ironically, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former House, House, House General Counsel for Homeland Security Committee. She's the former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, as he is often, he is the former, uh, he's the former Undersecretary of Commerce that's worked for at last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington Center, and a very distinguished and apparently popular fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Uh, I, I, I would make the point that uh, we were not warned that you could bring your own cheering section. Alan has no, snuck that in. No, and apparently Alan has brought the entire Stimson Center with him. So, anyway, <laughs> lots to talk about. We're going to start by opening up the uh, developing story coming out of Detroit right now. Uh, which could have huge economic impacts for a lot of people, especially Democrats right now, is the court ruling today that the bankruptcy for the city of Detroit can go forward in what is now officially the largest municipal bankruptcy in the history of American government. This is huge. What's going to happen? Well, if you held a bond in in the Detroit Public Works, you're screwed. If you are a retiree from any part of city government in Detroit, you're screwed too. On top of the fact that the economic numbers continuing to come out of Detroit are just hemorrhaging population and economic development, this is a nightmare. Uh, Alan Warren, since you've got your cheering section here, I'll start with you. The Detroit situation, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it's gotten worse. And now the people that are truly going to be hurt are those who actually spent their lives working for the city, Alan? Well, there's no winners here other than 
the possible uh, future city of Detroit. It was in it was in uh, practical bankruptcy. It it had liabilities that were multiples of its ability to pay. The only question was how are they going to sort that out? They can't print money like the federal government can. So it was just a matter of time. There's no big surprise or major new news here. It's obviously disappointing for the municipal workers who hoped and prayed that maybe, just maybe, somehow the courts would say, you have to keep paying this particular group of creditors, although we're going to just deep six all the other ones, it's everybody's in the same boat, typical bankruptcy, no big surprise to me, but now it's a matter of, of turning it back yeah, into the, the bankruptcy court. If you're a if pensioner you're, who spent 30 years working for the city of Detroit in their sanitation department, hey, you got a problem. You rely on that to survive. You, that just became much more difficult now. It, there was no way that the, that the pensioners were going to be made whole. It was not a legitimate option because the the city can't afford to meet the obligations to the workers, to bondholders, to creditors. Now there's a chance for a more orderly process and figure out what they can do for these various creditors, including pensioners. But, but Bob, you know, as an attorney, I mean, basically the courts allowed the nuclear option for the city of Detroit in their bankruptcy uh, uh, filing. This is the ultimate nuclear option. This is not a Chapter 11 reorganization. This is the municipal government equivalent of Chapter 7. We're just liquidating everything. We're just saying the paper you have is worthless. Yes, that's exactly right. But at the same time, you're having a new mayor coming in uh, who was just installed uh, as the head of government for the city of Detroit. You've got everybody in Michigan begging economic development to come to that part of the country, how are you going to be able to do this with this hanging over like a dark cloud? I'm not sure. I I, I am pretty sure that it's going to get worse before it gets better. How much worse can it get, Bob? I mean, I mean, short of them, they're they're already not paying for overtime for firefighters, police, and sanitation, and other essential workers. They're not uh, they're not bringing business in in any great storm. How can it possibly get worse for Detroit or for Michigan? You know, if if I knew that answer, I could sure get help paid an awful lot of money because I don't know what the answer to their problem is. I, they have done a great deal to, in effect, slim down things. They are trying, you know, they have removed whole segments of the city, the, the buildings that have been sitting there for years that have been vacant and, and are derelict buildings. They're tearing them down. They're cleaning things up. The, the appointed mayor the, and the government that's operating now is, in effect, trying to clean up a lot of areas, fix up a lot of areas that can be taken care of, and trying to stem the exodus of people from the city. And I think they've lost, I think, about 60% of their population, if I'm correct. So it's a terrible problem. Congressman Al. I think the way to fix this is to invent time travel and then go back about 60 years or more and do things differently. This was screwed up a long time ago. It was probably going on in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And 
it's unfortunately one of those things where you don't see the effect of it until the 80s, the 90s, uh, and now the teens. Uh, and this leads me to a conclusion that both parties, both philosophies, conservatives and liberals, need to get off repeating the same old things that they've each been repeating forever. <clears throat> Clearly, it's easy to blame the Democrats who, who, who liked to help people and didn't like to think about where the money was coming or that would ever run out. On the other hand, the Republicans had a tendency to always say, well, if you're poor, it's your fault. And uh, we, we don't need to take care of the poor. That's, you know, that they should have done something differently. So that neither side was really paying attention to the fact that you've got some human needs out there that need to be met and need to be paid for, and both work together and find a way to do that. Interestingly enough, that's almost exactly where the United States as a country finds itself today in so many ways. And uh, we're not seeing any evidence up on the Hill that they've yet learned the lesson. Denise Kraft. I, I agree with you. I, I, it's going to be the ripple effect that we need to look out for because Detroit wasn't the only city that's been put into this uh, situation. You've got other cities, and by the way, other cities that were led by Democrat and Republican mayors. So the, it's not, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, you've got a lot of cities in the United States that are now bankrupt, and what's the precedent that's just been created by declaring uh, Detroit bankrupt? Not only is the precedent for the cities that are bankrupt, but what about the precedent for the cities that are tipping into bankruptcy right now, and those that are not even anywhere near bankruptcy, what are their bondholders saying to them to make sure that they can shore up the capital okay, but so they but don't bleed in? But here's, here's the problem that you have, Denise, is you've got a new mayor, uh, Mike Duggan, Yep. Okay, first white mayor in Detroit in 40 years right. coming in. This is a guy who brought the Detroit Medical Center, the largest hospital in Detroit, out of bankruptcy several times uh, and, and used those restructuring powers as his basis, his platform to win. But what you've got is you've got a new mayor in Duggan who's got not just the medical center. medical center is a whole other story. This is an entire municipality where you have poor public services, you've got huge unemployment numbers, crime is just skyrocketing, and on top of the fact, you're still charging astronomical taxes. So does Duggan come in and say, well, all right, well, maybe we need to cut taxes? Can't do that because we need revenue. Is the bankruptcy maybe a blessing in disguise? Well, it's a blessing in disguise that will force everybody to add to it. The concern he's going to have right now is keeping the tax base that he does have. I mean, the only way you're going to bring revenue into that city is to keep your tax base, which means you have to keep the people there who are currently there. I'm guessing the majority of folks that have left were those that could leave, and you, now you've got folks on one side that couldn't leave, so their, their tax bracket is probably not the best. And then you've got others that you're trying to encourage to come in, but they're going to say the only way I'm coming in is if you give me a tax break. I mean, it's going to be a difficult situation, but it's a clean start. Everybody knows what's happening. But, but, but Alan Moore, you know, on top of the fact that we're talking about what could be, you know, a brand new shining star in Mike Duggan in Detroit, is Mike Duggan a, literally a figurehead under the current law in Detroit with the city being in state receivership? Well, now that, now that it's formally uh, before a bankruptcy judge, there's going to be a judge who's got an enormous amount of power. But this was all foreseeable, anticipated. I, I mean, I don't, it, it, things may, in, 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 in 
in a way get worse because people are going to come to have to come to grips with the facts. But I see this as a as a little bit of a parting of the clouds so that it can begin to move forward. There's actually in parts of downtown Detroit, as I understand it, there's been a a, a, a mini boom of interest, investment, and so on. It's not big enough yet, but there's. They've gone through a loss, as Bob pointed out, of more than half of their population. They finally began tearing down a lot of these buildings. There still is some economic activity there, and there's a potential for more. Once you clear away all of the uncertainties about where the money's going to go, the new tax money, is it going to go to pay for legacy costs of the past, or is it going to go to pay for current services? which now becomes a lot more possible, there's a potential for the future. And, and this is not the first city that's gone bankrupt. There's been a few other public jurisdictions. It's just by far the biggest one. You know, I, I've talked to the show a couple of times. There's a great movie that I, I believe you can get on DVD now. It was a movie that was produced by, uh, of all people, the comedian Walter. Dennis Leary. It was called Burn. And it was spending a year with the Detroit Fire Department, the, most, the, the, the busiest firehouse in Detroit. Watching that movie, and I'm a huge fan of this movie, you see firefighters who cannot respond to emergency calls because their equipment doesn't work, because the fire hydrants can't pump water. And then they're at a point right now where there are so many abandoned buildings in Detroit, abandoned housing projects and houses, single-family homes, they literally, if they catch fire, they just burn down. And we hear stories of that through Detroit Police Department. We talk about health and human services in the city of Detroit. All of that, where's the crossroads? Is, can this get better? And is there a crossroads point, Bob, where we could see, you know what, that's the past. Just let it go. we just got to move forward. We're going to pay what goes forward. I think the answer to that is yes. Now, it, it's true, you know, one, we have to remind ourselves that Detroit was so heavily invested in the automobile business. And when the Japanese and the foreign companies started building all better kinds cars. of better cars in the South at a better price, uh, it really killed the economy up there, number one. Number two, right now, they don't have much of an economic base. But they have an awful lot of land that they're clearing. It's, you know, the, the buildings are burning down naturally. They're falling down because they're old. They're being cleared away. And this is not stuff that's 25 miles out. This is literally within walking distance of the core of the city, where, where the Renaissance Center is in the downtown along the river ends, which is a relatively attractive but, place. But here's so they have a good start with all that land available if they can clear it and they can start finding companies that want to have, it, have a but space. It, but it is a conundrum. You've got still, to this day, the three major auto manufacturers in America, GM, Chrysler, and Ford, all still headquartered in Detroit or the metropolitan Detroit area. You've got all of this capability in Detroit, yet they're shipping out that manufacturing to right-to-work states, fair labor states, etc. Is this a hit on... The unions themselves, does this make, does this take away from the credibility of, like, let's say the UAW? Look, if you're a businessman and you're building a product and you can build it in, in, in state A 20% cheaper than you can in state B, you're going to probably decide long term to move. Reality. I mean, you, you, you know, no businessman is going to absolutely. 
But you've got talent and thought leadership. But you've got talent and thought leadership and experienced people there in Detroit. By the way, Ford is reporting quarterly earnings that has skyrocketed past anything they've done before. Chrysler, with their joint venture with Fiat, has come out of bankruptcy and is now profitable. Yes. And GM is starting to turn a profit. They're doing well. But so, so what is your question? My question is, yeah. I'll get to that. With all with all these this record week? numbers, with all these record numbers, and you're also seeing a situation where your headquarters is in a city that's literally dying a slow and painful death. Why don't the car manufacturers reinvest in Detroit? Because they can't do it by themselves. I mean, Detroit is a one-company town, and anybody can tell you. It's a three-company town. Well, You've got three companies that are making skyrocketing it profit. Is bottom, it's, one, it, it, it's one business. It is a one-business town. I, mean, I, I grew up in the military, and, and the best analogy I can give you is that when the Army surges and leaves Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is the home of the 82nd, businesses tank. And they tank quickly because the soldiers are gone and their wives have gone to their mothers. So, I mean, we've seen in Fayetteville, North Carolina, huge swings. And what's happening in Detroit is the fact that everybody left and nobody's coming back. In Fayetteville, the soldiers come home. In Detroit, they're not. But I, I, I think you're comparing that. apples to oranges. I think, I, I, I think you absolutely are. What you're talking about is you're talking about a city that has literally factories that sit abandoned. It, is, it would not – let me rephrase this. It would make sense that if you're trying to save your corporate headquarters city – and trying to make Detroit the boom city and the, and the strong city that it once was, why not invest right in your backyard? Alan Moore. Here, here, here's, here's the question. If you're trying to save your company, you're trying to build a new product, and you're trying to build it in the place that makes the most sense for you. Where your headquarters are, fine, but the, the infrastructure for the auto industry in and around Detroit is busted and broken, and you to, to, to put a new factory, in effect, in an old factory, a factory that is so automated now that it takes fewer than half of the man hours it used to take to make a car. So we make, the reason these companies are making, making money is because they have modernized, they've improved their quality, and they've greatly increased their, their productivity elsewhere. So they're making money, they're making cars, they're making, they're, they're making competitive cars, they're not making them in Detroit, and there is no incentive to go back to Detroit. It's a lot easier if there's some really smart people who are highly talented that they can't find somewhere else in Detroit, they will move elsewhere. Congressman Al. If, if I understood you correctly, you're wondering why the, the, the people who are managing those three American car companies don't spend some time, energy, and money in saving the city. Is that, is yes. that correct? Okay. And then I would ask you this question. Take all three of those and, uh, and start listing what it's four or five or six <laughs> or, 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 or 20 uh, primary goals are. Where does save Detroit come in those company goals. Uh, you know businessmen. Now, if, if, if you can get away with that, that they should save the city, then we could also say they also have a responsibility to save the poor and to fund education. And it's, it's just unrealistic to expect the free enterprise system to do that kind of job. It's one of the things Democrats have been saying Did for years. Did Congressman Allen just become a Republican? No, he's been coming along slowly. Oh, my God! Carson! But the great thing about it, 
He's listening around wow, the table. Wow, you matured, Congressman Al. Look. Neither of you listened to my last <laughs> sentence. That's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> but, but, go ahead, bottom line. That's first. why we have a tax system and larger yeah. levels of government. Yeah. Bob Hines. The reality is that right now, the, the automobile companies, I, the fact that they're, they've kept their headquarters in Detroit is, I think, somewhat of an idiomocenary attitude. I mean, they don't have to do that. They could go... They could is that go a dirty word? Wow. Yeah. Wow. You want, you want to clarify that for those of us who don't have the it's, law degree? It's a generosity move. Oh, okay. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Denise... Well, and I agree with you. I mean, can you pronounce Eliomasonary? <laughs> can you spell it? Oh, God. No, no, not the show. Any scrap? You know, first of all, do you think South Carolina and Alabama and Georgia and North Carolina are going to say yes, yes, please leave us now, go go home to Detroit? They're not. What they're going to say is no, no. If Detroit offers you, you know, if Michigan offers you some sweet deals, we'll offer you some sweeter deals. So it's it's not as if. The other states are going to say, yes, yes we, we want to help rebuild. But the, the, ironic, the ironic part about this, though, is we haven't seen that type of tax incentive base coming out of Michigan for Detroit. It's almost as if, <clears throat> it's almost as if the, the, the state has said, hey, you guys are on your own. Alan Moore. The, they, the state can't print money. They were so heavily um, dependent upon a handful of industries that became non-competitive and inefficient. They had a they had a poorer product than other than other competitors, and their and their assembly lines were not modern. And when they realized if we to survive, we've got to change everything we do. Where are we going to do that? We're going to do that in the place that economically makes the most sense. And that was not right there in Detroit. So it and and and, I, and I'm not going to going to worry that. Detroit is suddenly, or Michigan is going to somehow make really fascinating offers to any of these these companies. This isn't a restaurant chain where you can just pick up and move. They have tens, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in plant and equipment. You don't pick up and move, um, uh, and once you're there, that's that's why it's so hard to see Detroit coming back in the auto industry. What they have to do is find other things, and that's what they're trying to attract into to uh, into Detroit. Well, Bob Hines, this leads to a bigger situation. The state of Illinois is not that far away from filing their own sort of bankruptcy filings. They've already put out feelers on the fact that they could be in deep financial trouble. Is this some, is Detroit possibly a lead-on for an entire state to file suit? Well, I'm not sure, but I do know this. Uh, in the uh, the legislature, uh, led by the governor, has been moving legislation forward to, uh, in effect, support the pe the pension systems. This in, is in Illinois. In Illinois, right. in Chicago, the mayor, uh, former congressman Rahm Emanuel, is doing the same thing. Both the governor and the uh, mayor are very strong Democrats, and both of them have, in effect, said to the unions, "Hey." You're going to have to pay. We can't do it anymore. We have to stop this stuff. This, this idea we could always find more money someplace to get to pay outrageous pensions for people who retire at 50 at 80% of pay and stuff like that is out, is out the window. They're changing the whole system. Whether it's going to be enough, I don't know. 
But I do know that the legislature and the, as, is just about finished with the bill, and I suspect that it's going to be a big, big story very shortly because they're really moving hard because they see what's happening. Congressman Al, I mean, these are, I, these are states that largely rushed to support the president. Is this possibly a dent in the uh, president's armor? going forward into 2014 and 2016? Are his coattails being uh, trampled on? Well, well coattails. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But whatever he's got left. He's got a lot of problems, but I don't think this is one of them. This, is, this goes way back. Do the Democrats and liberals and labor unions have some complicity in this? You bet. And you can't deny it, and you're not turning into a Republican by admitting the truth. I have been saying for years that organized labor uh, has, has got to get over uh, the things that worked in the 30s and the 40s and start coming up with new plans. I think they should have begun demanding seats on the boards of these things sufficient that they can verify when the company says we can't afford this, we can't afford to increase your uh, health coverage, we can't afford to increase your pension. <clears throat> that they got somebody on the board who's got the facts who can verify that they're telling the truth, and it will and it will see that the, that the corporations in fact tell the truth, which I don't think they always do, in situations of that sort. Uh, there, there's another side to this, and 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 it will get us too far off the subject. But I I think that you can draw some parallels about the way Republicans have traditionally operated can also lead us to some very crucial situations. <clears throat> if, if the schools go to hell, if, uh, if you've got poor people on the street, as, and, and so forth and so on, eventually that can become uh, a, a very difficult problem to deal with, and it will be because there were too many people who said uh, poor people are poor. But Al, but you've just, created, you've just created an infinite loop. You've just created literally an infinite loop, whereas, you know, you can't pay for the schools, so you can't have a good school system to get the kids to stay off the streets. You can't have a good health and human services infrastructure to pay for social services if you don't have the tax revenue coming in to support that. So how do you break that infinite loop? What? What it suggests, and what I'm hinting at, is that the, both sides have got to rethink how they have approached their philosophy, or how their philosophy approaches what they what they want to achieve in terms of a balanced uh, country. Does I, I, I'm going to repeat something I said before. You know, there sits there sits the donkey in the middle of the road, and they and the and the Republicans treat it with a stick. And the, and the Democrats treat it with a carrot. But they have been standing at the wrong end of the animal for decades. And the Republicans are beating it in the head, and the Democrats are shoving a carrot up its ass, and it's not... Family work. show, Al. Family show. Easy. Easy on the uh, language. Where would you stick the carrot? <laughs> in its ear. Somewhere other than its... Good Lord. Hey, Al, it sounds like if you're a donkey, you are in the middle of a shitstorm. <laughs> Alan, family show. Jeez. Good Lord. Uh, I'm going to go to some... I'm going to go to the cleanest member here, Bob Hines. 
does, I have a bad word too. <laughs> forget it. Denise Crack, does does the federal does in fact now, as some have talked about in democratic circles, uh, because it is such a key it is such a key city, as such a key demographic, such a key region to the Democratic Party. There are some that may be pushing the federal government to step in and doing a bailout, a la they did with the car manufacturers. Do you foresee a bailout of the city of Detroit, or no. is that too far down the road? We can't. No. We cannot do it. It would be the worst thing we could do. No. I mean, okay. we, we, we could provide support, policing support, and, and, and I mean, it was what, about five, six years ago, the FBI took over the New Orleans Police Department because they were so corrupt that they couldn't police their own. I mean, I, I, I could see them doing bits and pieces like that, but a wholesale takeover? No. You know, the, we, have to, we have to let Detroit go through the process and restructure the contracts they've got with employees in the schools, in the government, in the, in the, the pension programs. We have to let it go all the way through. We have to set a standard that this is, you have to be sure as a government, whether you're a state or the local government in the big city, you have got to make sure that you can afford the programs that you are wanting to create. And when you go beyond them and you let the unions get more than they that is available, it's like anything else. If you're, if, if you know, if you're, if you, uh, if you lose a little bit of money in a family, you're a little short. You don't start buying more presents. You cut back a little bit. The city, these big cities have not wanted to do that. And 30, now they're going to have to. 30 seconds, Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, just Al a couple of times has, has commented on how Republicans feel about poor people, and I thought that it was worth at least pointing out that a, that a, that a Congressional Research Service study this year found that we spend about $750 billion federal dollars every year on low-income means-tested, low-income people on means-tested programs. And so, to, and, and, and Republicans have played a role in some of those. They may question about the, the, total, the total amount of money, the value of, of all of those. They're trying to get the maximum bang for the buck. But I, I think it, 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 there's a question of reasonableness here that needs to be part of this conversation. Are we doing the right things? Are we spending the right amount of money? And just because somebody says we're not sure doesn't mean they're suddenly... Uh, hateful of the poor. To shock you, I totally agree with that. Wow. Both sides need to rethink how they have approached these problems because what they've been doing up to now isn't working. Wow. A carrot in the mouth. All right, there we go. There we go. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk healthcare.gov. It's apparently working. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. 
You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, so in case you haven't heard, the president gave a little bit of a presser where he had a laptop on his little podium, and he tried logging into healthcare.gov. Apparently he was successful. He did not open up healthcare.gov and be forwarded to, like, Albanian porn. So this is a good thing. So the reality is... The, so, on, tell me about Albanian. Albanian port, <laughs> long story. So anyway, when you, when, you opened it up, I know, I know. But back on subject, the uh, on 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 December first, basically the White House came up and said, "Hey, it's it's working. We can hit all of the masses in force with healthcare.gov. It's effectively fixed. It's not 100 percent, but it's close enough for government work." At the same time, we're still hearing problems with enrollment. Enrollment is up. Uh, there are 100,000 new enrollees in Obamacare as of, last, as of the beginning of December. There are all kinds of positive spin coming out of the White House. However, Democrats on the Hill now are just running as far away from this as they can, including Democrats that have voted for this. Joining us, as he is late sometimes, but still fashionable, he is the former Democratic chair, uh, Democratic executive director of the great party of the great state of Maryland. He is Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. We started four. <laughs> so thank you. And I, I have to tell you that at 3:50, I was in the area, going around the corner, watch, waiting for a, uh, a parking, parking spot. place. But then I had to go down and park and 
in the garage. Yeah, okay, there we go. Uh, Carl, let's start with you. Democrats are literally running away as fast as they can from uh, the Affordable Care Act and from the president. This is, this is after the president is hemorrhaging popularity. Are the Democrats coming up with some sort of strategy to fix this? You know, <clears throat> there, there were problems. He took a lot of heat. He's still taking heat. We've solved part of the problem, and there's still problems to go. I mean, uh, you know, a few weeks ago with, uh, in testimony before the Congress, uh, they haven't built the, the infrastructure that they need in jan for January, where when people make claims, insurance claims can be, can be paid by the insurance companies. Uh, so there's still problems to go. The big thing is, the important thing is, is that he said he would get this done by the end of the month, end of November, and he did. And, and uh, you know, there, there's, I listened to TV this morning, and there's still people saying, oh, Obamacare is no good, and you have to this, that, and the other. And Boehner says, you know, I'm here to protect the American people, protect them against Obamacare, protect them against this, and protect them against that. But it is working, and we'll have to wait to see. Hold on, hold on, Carl. Hold on. Let me just throw something out there. Denise, I'm going to go to you for this one. I mean, when, when Carl's saying that, you know, the, the message is it's working, in Illinois, the president's home state, a majority of those polled by a Democratic polling group, almost half of the uh, registered voters in Illinois feel that they disapprove of the Affordable Care Act, 70% saying that it has been somewhat unsuccessful. That's a huge problem for the president. Can so, it, so what? Well, all right. This is, I mean, I'm registering right now. My husband and I had a conversation. Are we staying with Kaiser or are we going to go with Blue Cross and Blue Shield? I mean, we're going to be one of the ones come January 1st on this insurance program. And I can tell you, considering, you know, the... the the information that we've received that this has actually been easier to get the insurance than it has been to register my husband's new phone. I mean, it, it was very telling, by the way, to have my husband having a couple more four-letter words to say about this new iPhone than it was to talk about the insurance, which led me to think about, hmm, while we're all focused on this, why are we all not focused about other systems that are broken? So, you know, there are some snafus. You're right. There's some problems. But it's going to happen, and but, it's going but, to happen but, come January. But wait a minute! But you're talking about seventy in one poll, seventy-three percent of Democrats in Illinois uh, overall say it's somewhat working. There's not a glowing endorsement from Democrats in the president's home state saying that ACA that the Affordable Care Act is even marginally successful. Well, you could use the old analogy that we used in the military, Justin, which was a grumpy sailor with a happy sailor. <laughs> you could. It wouldn't work here, but you could. Congressman Al. Well, when I said a moment ago, so what? <clears throat> what I meant by that is that public opinion moves according to uh, a whole variety of things, and almost all the news about this program has been bad. And the bad news has get, been getting higher play than has the good news. And so for, I, I'm not surprised by those numbers at all. What I will be surprised by is if a year from now, they're not very different. I think they will be different. 
as far as members of Congress, and I wanted to get this in, running Democrats in Congress, some running away from this, these, these are the, the gutless wonders who know they've got an election coming up before the president does because he's not going to ever run again. And so they are going to, uh, you know, kind of run away from it until it gets popular, and then they'll run back so fast and make your head swim. <clears throat> there, are, there are Democrats who will hang in there and will turn out to be, have to be proven correct. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, we can't mistake healthcare.gov, a website for Obamacare, as, as we've said around this table. We're in the very, very beginning. The beginning has taken a lot longer than we thought. The, the website, healthcare.gov, is sort of the ignition on a car, a door into a room. It looks now like we're going to be able to get into the room. We're going to get the car started. We know this car is not a BMW. Is it a Chevy Cruze or is it a Yugo? And that we don't know and won't know for several months until we see who has, how many people have signed up and who they are, and we can't know that yet. And I'm with Al on the, I don't think public opinion polls right now make, it, make much of a difference at all. We don't have an election um, in a month, and we're going to know a lot more. Now, there are a lot of us who think that this is, more, this is closer to a Yugo than a, than a, than a Chevy Malibu, but we don't know that. We're going to find that yeah, out. But, Alan, you know, when you, when you sit there and you say, you know, try, trying to tie healthcare.gov and trying to rather separate it from the Affordable Care Act, you can't do that. It's the gateway into getting into the Affordable Care Act, coming into compliance. If the gateway doesn't work, Affordable Care Act doesn't work. No, no, work. no, but that's my point. The gateway is now working. Two months late, it was the, the White House, for some reason, uh, they're... they're, they're, they're their editors weren't very smart when they were patting themselves on the back that, that said, we're now getting close to the velocity of the private sector. Oops. Um, maybe we should have brought them in sooner. Maybe instead of bringing the A team in to fix something after the launch, we should have brought the A team in a year or two ago. But get that, that's coming together. People are going to be able to sign up. And it's and Denise and a lot of other people who've been canceled and want insurance, who haven't been able to buy insurance, they're all going to come in. They've still got time but if the system works for them. But we, let's talk about that aspect for a second, because Denise, you mentioned something about you going, well, do we go and leave the current system that we have now and go on through DC HealthLink, which is where you live, that is the exchange. Do we go on DC HealthLink and do we go with Blue Cross Blue Shield? Basically, what you're doing is giving, you're shopping around your insurance coverage. Whether you leave Aetna or Cigna or Kaiser Permanente to go to Blue Cross Blue Shield, you could have done that in the private sector without Affordable Care Act. You could have shopped it around. Why, why, does, why does the federal government have to insist, hey, this is the way it's going to go? It's the federal government helping to make sure that people who don't currently have insurance can get insurance. I have the ability, because of the salary that I have, to get insurance. There are other people who are not, just, there are a lot of people out there who are not as lucky and as not as fortunate as I have been in my life. And I do believe that it's important for all of us to assist those people, because quite frankly, it's cheaper on the healthcare system to do preventive medicine than it is for them to be going every night to the emergency room because they have a cold or they have a sniffle. Seeing a doctor for preventive care is cheaper in the long run than it is on the other side. Bob Hines? 
I read something recently which um, caught my eye and I thought it was pretty interesting. The IRS is the place that everybody is going to have to go, in effect, with their, they have to, you know, when they sign up, the, if they're going to get a subsidy, the IRS has got to, you know, be able to get a hold of their last tax return and see how much the income is and then decide, and then, and then with the formula, provide them with the number of what their subsidy can be. I, am, I understand that that process is not completed, not even near completed. So it better be quick. If they can't do it in the next couple of months, when the, when the program starts and people are, are, are signed up and wanting health care, they may not even have a subsidy yet. There may be some more problems coming that may be not as bad as the open as the getting the door open and making it work, but it's clear that inside there's going to be some problems until but, they get that done. Well, you know, it's funny because you know when you look at the media coverage, the media coverage on healthcare.gov has just been excruciating from the administration standpoint. However, the one question that nobody seems to have asked Congressman Al is not just will healthcare.gov work. Will the Affordable Care Act itself work? They're basically, all they're doing is just giving a marketplace to go shop and find private insurance anyway. You're looking puzzled, Congressman. Now, that doesn't make for good radio. <laughs> I, I think that probably is an excellent answer to your question. Why? <laughs> because, first of all, I'm not sure that your information is, is correct. Uh, secondly, I have this belief that it got a bad start, it's going to take a while for it to work out, and almost anything you find now uh, that is bad uh, can, be, can be extrapolated to it's not going to work, if that's what your feeling is. And some, it is the feeling of some of us here. And others of us say, you know, we think this, you know, what they've been fixed so far has been fixed, and they'll fix these other problems. And uh, we have got a problem in this country on health care. We've had it for years, and we've finally done something about it. And the answer is, if this doesn't work, we, you can't tell me that we're better off if it doesn't work. And that's precisely what the Republicans are saying. It was a terrible system before. And if we go back to it, we'll go right back to a terrible system. But Alan, Alan Moore, no, I mean, no. Alan, you know, we, to support the Democratic side, when Social Security rolled out uh, under FDR, when Medicare, Medicaid, and even going as far advanced as to the Medicaid, uh, the Medicare Part B situation under President George uh, W. Bush, they all had their problems. Social Security, everybody said this will never work, it'll never work. It seems to have worked, even though we have a little bit of a financial crunch on it. I mean, is this just the same thing all over again? Is this deja vu all over again? Well, that's what the Democrats hope. It would be fine with me if it worked out that way. I resent it when people say, I'm hoping it fails. I don't hope it fails. I think it's going to fail because I think it's, it was constructed in the wrong way technically and politically. That was not the case with Social Security. That was not the case with Medicare. The other thing with Social Security and Medicare is we were creating something where nothing previously existed. 
suddenly there's these new benefits. Everybody's going to have to pay a little bit of money, and the old folks are going to are, are going to get something. In this case, what we did was we had a system where about 70% of America was more or less satisfied with what they had. What about the other 30%? What are we going to do about that? And instead of going to the to the end of the line to figure out where there was agreement on some things that could be done, um, the Democrats decided to go their own way, do their own thing, vote it in without any Republican support, and and but just because it's it's not that that Republicans are just feeling bad because they got left out, they don't think it will work. The website. That's going to get. That's being fixed. That has never been the issue. The issue is is the is the construction of these subsidies, expansive benefits, etc. Is that going to work? Let me work? ask you a question. We don't do, know yet. Do you think that anybody in the administration, or do you think anybody on the Hill, thought about the downstream consequences of actually putting this forward as is? This is a complex bill. I think there's always been a question about whether young, healthy people are going to step forward and sign up. And if they don't, you get into what they call a death spiral, where the wrong people, it's, it's called adverse selection. Sick people, older people, higher cost people flood into the system. The younger, healthier people say, I'll take my chances. I'll even pay this fine because I can't pay the thousands of dollars and, that, that even with a subsidy this is going to cost. And me. Carl Tuman, I got to tell you something. You know, this goes back to an argument that says, look, the one thing that Affordable Care Act did not change is if a young person does not sign up, they pay the penalty, they get into a car accident, they need major uh, medical work done to fix them. The reality is, if they don't have the money, they rack up a $400,000 medical bill at a hospital. If they don't have the money, they're not going to pay. The hospital is going to sue them, put them into collections. They're going to say, hey, kiss my where the sun don't shine. Then, on top where of that, carrot goes. where the carrot goes, exactly. And then after that, when the hospital doesn't get paid after lawsuits and collections, they're going to go to CMS. They're going to go to the federal government and either get tax write-offs or reimbursement from Medicare Medicaid. They haven't fixed that. So is there, have they thought about the consequences of that, Carl Tubin? You know, the whole, the whole reason why they, they did this was because they wanted to take the 30% and they wanted to get the 30% insured in one way or another because the 30% was driving up our health care costs. People go, as you say, people went to the emergency room and all that. Now, it's not going to be perfect. Do the hospitals, are the hospitals part of the blame for, or the healthcare providers, are they part of the blame for driving up costs? I think there were, I think everyone was to blame. Not just the hospitals, not just, you know, but the insurance companies, everybody. Now, now the, other, the other thing I want to remind everybody, Alan, is that it took three months before Part D was fixed. And, and in those three months, I don't remember any hooping and hollering from Republicans about George W. Bush and that damn uh, uh, Medicare prescription program. You, Alan, you, you want to fact you, check that? Uh, you talked about apples and oranges comparisons. Yeah. How about how about apples and, and bunny rabbits? <laughs> Medicare Part D was passed with bipartisan support. Some Democrats opposed it because it wasn't generous enough. 
It was something for nothing. When that's happening, there's an enormous amount of patience until it works. Um, this is a case where you take 20, 18% of the economy, you completely disrupt it, you make false promises about the people who are happy and how they're going to be left alone, and they can't even get the website right, but it's not the website that's the issue. But Alan, it's I'm going to disagree who with you. Who signs up and what happens? The trap. And Justin, I have to say, you're forgetting about a huge pressure point, and that's called parents. Parents can have children on their insurance up to about 21, in some cases, or 26. I can tell you, you know, several examples where parents are saying, get on. We will help you pay. We will do this because the parents know that their children have to do it. The parents are going to put pressure on these young people under 30 to get that insurance because they know what will happen if their kids don't get on. It's not happening now, though, Denise. Okay, Jessica. <laughs> When you studied for your finals, when did you study? When oh, you were 20? Did you, did you actually do it a month ahead of time? apples and bunny No, I am not, because I know the mentality. I'm a teacher. I can tell you how many times people are like, okay, I can do it, I can do it. No, shit. Oh, God, the final's happening now. i got to do it now. No, no, no. He, That's what's happening. You guys are, I think, he's saying it's not happening under the current system. Right. Parents are putting that pressure on. The Believe parents, me, I was putting pressure on my kids that... You guys, whatever else you do, I don't care if you get a job, but you've got to get some health insurance because you've got to protect yourselves and, and, and the rest of us. What she's talking about is wait until the last minute on sign-up. A lot of people are going to sign up. There yeah. are going to be a lot of people who are helped. Everybody with a pre-existing condition, oh, my God, they've been waiting for this opportunity. They're going to sign up. It costs a bunch of money. There's an, there are huge redistribution effects here that haven't played out yet. So it's not like a year well, from now still, everything it works It still fine. comes down to the fact, Alan, that if I'm a 27-year-old, I am not on my parents' health care coverage anymore, I can pay the penalty. I'm not expecting to get sick. I'm going to go out there and play contact, full-contact dodgeball on the mall. I don't have to get insured. And in some cases, as Denise says, your parents are going to lean on you, and they'll even say, we'll help you with hey, this. Boy, I'm <laughs> not, they I can tell you right now, if my parents did that, I would have told them. I'm not talking about yours. I'm just saying that out there in the society, there are there hundreds are of thousands, of millions, parents, lots of parents say. who are saying, thank God I've got a way to keep you insured yeah. in, a, in a more... Congressman Al. Well, I, I'm hearing a lot of non sequiturs here. I have one. Bunny rabbits know which end to use the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> had to get that in, didn't you? I had to get that in. In 1964, there was a, a congressman elected from Tacoma. His name was Floyd Hicks, and he voted for Medicare. And when he ran for re-election in, uh, in, in uh, 66, uh, he was on a televised debate. And his opponent said, you know, you voted for that awful Medicare bill. And he started listing, and, and, and Floyd said, would you have voted for it? Oh, he says, not the way it was. I, I changed this, I changed that. And, and, and Floyd said, wait a minute. You know, in Congress, you don't have multiple choice questions. You get to vote yes or no. Which way would you have voted? He said, well, I'd have voted for it. And Floyd said, next question. <laughs> You know, it's, 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 we're hearing a lot of complaints, but uh, you really want to go back to the broken system we had before? I mean, that's the only But, Ali, here's, here's the thing about this, though. The one thing I've noticed about all of this is that we talk about the broken system, the broken system. 
Nobody's actually looked and said what made the system broken. The Affordable Care Act sure as hell didn't do it. What made the system broken, Jess? What made the system broken is the fact that you had everybody depending on the emergency room because they didn't have preventive care. This My God, the amount of money that hospitals had to pay. That's a minute part of it. No, it's not. It's a minute part of it, It is not a minute part of it. It is a minute part of it. No, it's not. It's the fraud that happens in Medicare, Medicaid oh, billing. Oh, I strongly disagree with you on it that is one. The, it is the fraud. It is, it is, the, it is the complex. Call an emergency room. Ask how much money they're spending on people who only have a cold and but when you're paying, when, when you have a healthcare system that's billing the federal government under Medicare Medicaid $400 for a catheter that it only costs $20 to their cost, that is a problem. That is a huge there, problem. There, change your name to John, Mr. McCullough. Right. <laughs> there, there are a lot of problems pre existing in the health system. Obamacare tries to tackle some of them at different times in different ways, not all right at, at, at the beginning. Some of us thought that we should have attacked problems in the existing system before we just tried to add a lot more people with, with, great, with high subsidies into that broken system. But we're, we're, we're going to play this out. But Al makes a, make, makes a very good point here that I wanted to, wanted to follow up on. You two are agreeing way too much. Well, no, it's when, he's, when, he, when he says that nobody wants to go back to the old system. There were huge problems with it. Where the Republicans are short, significantly short is, what do they want to take it to? They say repeal and reform. Reform to what? And that's something that hopefully within the next month or two, there are going to be some pieces coming forward about, about what they would like to replace it with. Right now, it's, as Al says, it's easy to just be critical. And actually, Republicans are smart if they sit on their hands, keep their mouths taped full of carrots, and let, uh, let the press, which feels so guilty at ignoring everything going on with Obamacare up until October 2nd, and is now trying to make up for it and piling on, um, let them do it. Let the public do it. Let the people, let the right. facts speak for themselves. First of all, first What's up, Don? All right, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm killing, I'm killing the carrot references right now. I'm shutting down anybody that mentions carrots. Cucumbers? No, no. But Bob Hines, Alan brings up a very valid point, though. Right now, we've seen a lot of vocal, somewhat almost obnoxious rhetoric about Obamacare, i.e. Ted Cruz and his ilk. When you see that happening, are the Republicans smart to say, Wait a minute, we're going to take a step back. Let's let it, if it's going to collapse, it'll collapse under its own weight. Well, I think it is foolish to keep yelling and screaming without any facts. And right now, the system is better than it was two months ago. I think the smartest thing the Republicans could do is keep their mouth shut on the issue. Right now, I think that's a smart thing to do. There may well be further problems. I suspect that there will be some, some real big bumps in the road yet. If they want to talk about it at that point and point out what the difficulties are and why they happen and what should be the solution, that's one thing. But the fact of the matter is, just to be running around yelling and screaming about Obamacare doesn't make a damn bit of sense. Yeah, it would make sense for them to, to wait until they yeah. have some alternative to yeah, suggest sure. before they do it. But, but this week, though, the president went on a brand new press media, social media offensive on Obamacare. Is this a little too little too late, Congressman Al? Well, you almost have to say yes. 
because of the mess that, that it got into at the outset. But the truth is probably not. Uh, I, I think uh, it's going to take, I think, several months before the political problem the administration has created for itself begins to even out. Right. Uh, I got to go to break. We got to go. We got people on hold. We got to go to break. Uh, trust me, Carl, this is not the last time we're going to talk about Affordable Care Act, I promise you. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we're going to talk international. Uh, joining us will be our international expert, Dr. Ralph Whitney. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. on Block Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Martini. Martini. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Stop chewing in the microphone, Al. Good Lord. <laughs> Joining us now, we're going, to, we're going to be talking about a lot of international news that has been going up on front of us uh, since we were gone last week for Thanksgiving. Joining us right now to join the conversation is Dr. Ralph Winnie. He is the Vice President of China Affairs for the Eurasia Center here in Washington, D.C. Ralph, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm just disappointed I can't be with you guys uh, this afternoon at Shelley's. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, hey, uh, Ralph, here's a question. Yep. Uh, let, let's start off with uh, the most recent events happening. Let's talk about China. Uh, China, okay. China this over the weekend started flexing its muscles on its uh, air boundaries between Japan and, uh, and, and, and its mainland China. 
this is something that's gotten the U.S. attention, where U.S. fighters and bombers accidentally, apparently, flew into Chinese airspace. But there's now international question as far as who determined that airspace. What's Beijing's take on this right now? Well, I think what's interesting to point out is that on the regional level, the PRC uh, apparently believes that China is destined to lead the Asia-Pacific. While this is not officially a pronounced policy of the People's Republic of China, it's certainly what in, in the mindset of the, uh, the military and the uh, policy leaders in China. And this is creating a lot of problems now with their neighbors and with the, with the, the United States, which is deeply concerned about what is called this air defense identification zone. Notice the Chinese have said this is not a territorial airspace and that unidentified warplanes that entered it will not be shot down. But what China is doing is they're asserting the right to, quote, identify and ascertain the intentions and attributes of aircraft from foreign countries. So China is taking the lead um, in determining which planes can enter or be restricted from this airspace that they've designated um, yeah, along the line you've got the Japanese now claiming that the Chinese have no right to, in fact, enforce this air defense identification zone, or ADIS, uh, into areas because their ADIS falls into Japanese airspace. Does Tokyo have a leg to stand on? Well, cer certainly the Chinese... Um, have set up this zone, it over, sort of overlaps with these string of disputed islands in the East China Sea. And if you talk to any, any policy expert or government official, uh, particularly in recent years, Beijing has shown an inability or rather unwillingness to recognize that in the eyes of its neighbors, what Chinese would view as defense po uh, policies really look like China's assertiveness in, in terms of trying to flex its muscles and create their own hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, so the Chinese uh, are, are starting to uh, create a very unstable situation in the region by setting up this air zone. And you have President Biden now um, visiting um, Beijing. And the focus now has been taken away from discussing economic issues to uh, talking about the rising tensions that the zone has created, was announced um, uh, few weeks ago. All right, so the bottom line here on the Chinese situation, this is obviously not something that's going to go away. Does ICAO have any role in determining where or why the aid is that China is claiming should have precedence over what the rest of the international community is doing? Well, I think that the Chinese are trying to assert their own hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. They've, uh, they've set up this zone. Uh, and, claim, and claim that they have the right to monitor and patrol and make the decision about uh, who, who can enter, when, and where. Um, the problem is they're not going to have a lot of international law to stand on. They're basing it on the, their confrontation with the Japanese over these disputed islands. And it, it takes away from China's role as a responsible stakeholder in the international community. I think that that's what the Chinese are going to have to be deeply concerned about is the fact that they, um, they want to be considered a responsible stakeholder, they want to be, be, be viewed as a willing uh, friend and partner in the region, but 
And all this is going to do is it's going to turn people away from supporting their endeavors. It's actually going to create opportunities for the United States to partner and align with other countries. Certainly South Korea, Philippines, uh, Vietnam, um, everyone is deeply concerned about uh, the creation of this new air zone by the Chinese. And you have South Koreans now that are wanting to buy more Patriot missiles from from the United States, sort of in response to this. Um, it's 112 Patriot and anti-ballistic missile interceptors. Who would have thought South Korea would want this, but for the fact that there's this zone that the Chinese have arbitrarily set up? Alan Moore, this has created a lot of buzz for Secretary Kerry and the folks over at the State Department. Why, why is the State Department so nervous about this current situation regarding the Chinese air zone? Well, here's, here's two countries that, that, are, that are arguing, and we try to get along with both of them. And we got enough problems going on in the world now with this. It's, it's kind of one of those cases, if you're the U.S. standing aside, you're saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Leave it alone. Go back to the status quo ante. And, 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 uh, but but, but that's, that's sort of our, our view and our hope. In the meantime, there's this tension. There are wild words being thrown around, airplanes up there. The, the next thing you know, somebody gets shot down. We're just trying to calm everybody down, get them back to a point where they could leave things as they were, talk about it, figure something out, purchase rights. I don't know. I don't know all the details. I just know that the last thing we need right now is still another diversion.
Hello?
Everybody knows Shelly's Back Room for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelly's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelly's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelly's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room, it's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving. Saving my love for you and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain the one I love, I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that honor in a corner. talk about.